A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know, Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. While police initially thought that 330 people or so were killed uh, at the site of the first sect fire in Kanungu, they revised their estimates to 530. The, the scene of the fire was so intense and so many bodies were reduced to ashes and nothing but, but gore that it took them a while to come up with a more accurate estimate. What you've heard is the end result of the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God. Not deliverance, but destruction. By the year 2000, the movement and many of its followers would be engulfed in flames, wiping out most of the cult's records and transforming its history into a mystery. How did the creation of a banana beer brewer and a failed bureaucrat lead to such spectacular horror? Like all cults, the true power was in the mind of the beholder, or more specifically, the believer. Credoni Merende and Joseph Kibwiteri and the rest of the founding leaders of the movement were not blessed by God or the Virgin Mary, but they were blessed by timing. Credonia was merely a brewer in the midst of a nationwide civil war looking to make a name for herself. So she told people around her that the Virgin Mary had begun to speak to her. The Virgin spoke of the coming apocalypse and how only those who repented and returned to the ways of the Old Testament would survive. Credonia soon found her way to Joseph Kibwiteri, a mid-level Ugandan bureaucrat with a love of Marian apparitions. Her charisma won him over and the foundation of the movement was born. When Kibwiteri's wife guided them to the misfit Friar Dominic Katari Baabo, they found an ally who had ties to Catholic legitimacy and helped gain them the prestige of a religious movement themselves. But the rapid expansion of the movement was about more than just religion. It was about the national and political climate in Uganda and how those dire conditions pushed people to accept far-fetched claims and desperate hopes. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults. In the final episode of our two-part series, we'll move focus from the leaders of the cult, Credonia Merinde, Joseph Kibuteri, and Friar Dominic Katari Baabo, all detailed in last week's episode, and explore the inner workings of the movement itself, from its inception in 1989 to its bloody destruction at the turn of the 21st century. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. As we mentioned in the preceding episode, Uganda was under the rule of a brutal dictatorship from 1971 to 1979. That dictator's name was Idi Amin Dada, a former military leader who seized control for himself. During his reign, opposition groups were swept off the streets and executed. 
While many of the names have been lost to time, these killings left a sizable mark on Uganda's culture and future. A whole generation of young, bright people who would have made Uganda as great as it deserves to be either had to run away or were killed or, and tortured. As the 70s wore on, the cost of his rule was clear to almost every citizen. The economy was in shambles, and the number of Idi Amin's allies shrank. Many active mutineers fled across the border to Tanzania. Enraged, Idi Amin sent a strike force into Tanzania and declared the annexation of an entire region of that country in Uganda's name. Tanzania launched a counterattack, and by the middle of 1979, the Ugandan capital of Kampala was seized by opposition forces. Idi Amin fled the country. The capture of Kampala by Tanzanians and exiles set off an uncontrollable wave of looting and jubilation throughout the capital. Tanzanians admitted by evening the looting was out of control as joyous crowds emptied out stores and government houses. The population may have been overjoyed at Idi Amin's departure, but the government remained unstable. The power vacuum attracted more trouble. Elections were held, but future president Yoweri Museveni lost and declared the process a sham. He formed the National Resistant Army and took up arms against the former Uganda National Army and a division of the army known as the Uganda National Rescue Front. The result was the Ugandan Civil War, also known as the Ugandan Bush War a guerrilla conflict that raged across the country from 1981 to 1986. Even when Yoweri Museveni assumed the presidency in 1986, the country remained divided. Both sides in the civil war had committed atrocities, some even rivaling Idi Amin's brutality. Uganda hadn't found stable footing in its newfound democracy. They were citizens in search of meaning, any kind of meaning in the face of huge uncertainty. It was the perfect place to foster apocalyptic belief and paranoia. As the Ugandan writer and professor Bernard Atuher describes in his work, The Uganda Cult Tragedy, this time period was ripe for the creation of something like the movement. It was a climax of colonialism, not only on the political front, but on the spiritual one as well. On the ground, in local communities, status was key. People were desperate for any who held the answers to living a successful life in Uganda. Such status was controlled by education. And in the region where the movement was born, education was controlled by the church. As Atuher writes, quote, This monopoly of knowledge was not fought against in any way worthy of praise. There was only lip service paid to the rejection of ignorance. For a genuine struggle against ignorance could undermine the privileged position of the elite. End quote. What he means by this is that although ignorance was looked down upon by the emerging high society of Uganda, the wealthy also didn't want the poor to usurp them, so they cut off all access to real knowledge and upward mobility. As Credonia Mirinde and Joseph Kibwiteri learned, the only way into the ranks of power was to join them, and the only way to join them was to become religiously influential. So they told the people the apocalypse was coming, that that knowledge came straight from the mouth of the Blessed Virgin herself. They told the people that only the movement could provide shelter from devastation. They played the game of status and ignorance perfectly. And by the end of 1989, the momentum of the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God could not be stopped. It would absorb everything in its way, from innocent citizens to corrupt government and religious officials. It would become a monstrous overlord to its followers and a suffocating trap for its creators. 
And it all began with a simple process of indoctrination. In the beginning, there was the programmer. Her name was Credonia. Utilizing wit and perception, the programmer found her bishop, Joseph Kibwitere, the man with the influence and image the movement needed. Kibwitere's wife knew Scholastica Kamagara, a devout woman excluded from power in Uganda's Mbarara diocese. Through Scholastica's family, specifically her son, Joseph Kasapura Ari, the movement found Friar Dominic Katari Baabo. This initial chain of events became the formula Credonia would use for all conversions to come. Ugandan communities were made up of close-knit groups, a tapestry of different families and villages. This was the perfect host body for a virus. If the proper weak points of entrance could be found, the movement would be able to spread quickly. Atuher writes, quote, The propagation of the messages took on a chain approach, right after the immediate family and friends, then followed relatives and their friends, end quote. It was a distribution system as well as a marketing scheme. First, one member of the family would hear of the movement and be convinced to join. Their religious fervor would then convince those closest to them. From there, neighbors would see this family moving out to join a movement compound. Soon, everyone in a village would at least know about the movement. Chances are many of the neighbors would follow suit to at least explore the possibility of what might happen if they join. So Credonia made sure the movement appeared as accepting as possible for outside perspectives. The words I'm about to recite were written in A Timely Message from Heaven, the main text of the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments. Our Lord Jesus Christ also said, I died on the cross and shed my blood for everybody that has breath, be it a Protestant or a Catholic, be it a Muslim or a pagan who never embraced any religion, or whatever belief one embraces provided he is alive. Let him hear these messages. Excerpts from a timely message were distributed in many different ways. Like the chain of recruitment itself, perhaps the passages would be passed around in face-to-face communications around a town. Next, local papers would print excerpts of these messages. Such practice had a precedent. As the Roman Catholic Church published many papers, local authorities and citizens were used to religious text printed in community papers and notices. Finally, a timely message reached the local airwaves and beamed out around southwestern Uganda, helped along by Friar Dominic and Joseph Kibwiteri's connections to broadcast stations. Although distinct records of membership levels are scarce, it's clear that by 1993, the movement had gained a sizable following. It was awarded legal status to trade as a non-government organization by Ugandan authorities. They were able to set up official posts in towns that were less accepting of their beliefs and gain new followers as they appeared more legitimate with each passing year. The chain was operating at full speed. Credonia understood the mood of the nation. All of this was intentionally designed. Coupled with Credonia's adept knowledge of human behavior beneath the Roman Catholic religion, namely the influence of shame on human behavior, great numbers of people joined the movement every year. Remember, Credonia grew up under the heavy mantle of Roman Catholicism's expectations. She knew that the devout and the doubters alike were badgered by fear. If the religion was true, their sins were heavy and numerous. When potential followers balked at recruitment and claimed they could exercise good faith outside of the movement, they were shut down. The world was too full of sin. 
In clearer terms, people could not follow the new commandments of the Virgin Mary unless they were doing so within the bounds of the movement itself. They had to join, or their prayers wouldn't be enough. They had to enlist, or they'd be on the wrong side of the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. More psychological warfare from the movement. Not only was the movement weaponizing shame to guilt people into considering the cult in the first place, they were closing off all other exit routes. The movement was the necessary commitment, not just another option. The time for wishy-washy decision-making and faith was past. The apocalypse was coming, and the movement was the only answer. Credonia learned this well from her own upbringing. Religion was the saving grace of people with nowhere else to turn. She certainly internalized the messaging, if not the intent. It's unclear whether she was aware of what she was doing by enforcing these tactics, or if it was an automatic and unconscious directive on her end. Her agents were persistent. After scoping out a town or community for likely converts, the agents would hound these people, persistently. And as for those who tried to back out of the movement? Credonia gathered the family of these defectors who still followed her and granted them temporary leave so that they could return to their hometowns where they would physically stop the defectors from even entering their old houses. Defectors weren't just exiled from their families, but from their physical homes. You know, excommunication is a common tactic for many cults. In today's America, it's known to all as the primary fear tactic of Scientology. Families can be divided along cult lines. The importance of family in Uganda cannot be underestimated. Without that human connection, defectors became homeless or simply returned to the movement just so they wouldn't be alone anymore. Beyond this network of fear, another motivating force joined post-traumatic Civil War stress to assist the movement in recruitment. The AIDS epidemic that grew in strength in the late 1980s and early 1990s. We've been talking about millions of people sick Tens of thousands of orphans, now we're seeing what that really means. People are hungry, people are unable to go to school, people can't get proper medical care. It's always been difficult here, there's always been poverty, but what we're seeing at the moment is whole communities breaking down, family structures that can no longer cope with the orphans that they have. A whole generation of adults effectively being whittled away, pared down to almost nothing, leaving grandparents looking after dozens and dozens of orphans in some cases. This is something that Africa has never seen. It may be the most serious impact on this continent's population since the slave trade, when so many adults were taken away from here. As we said before, the fracturing of society was catnip for the movement's recruitment officers. A passage was added to the circulated excerpts of a timely message from heaven, directly referencing AIDS. Quote, The chastisement he released for that commandment, the world calls it AIDS disease. But from the Lord, it is a punishment. I will not give them any medicine. Its medicine will only be to repent and restore my Ten Commandments. Those who will do that will be forgiven, and they will be given medicine. I will only take away that punishment from them when they all repent, when they cry out to me and restore my commandments. Yet another sign that pointed to the apocalypse's approach. Yet another problem only the movement could solve. Mm -hmm. And so the chain continued. As convert after convert found themselves herded into various movement complexes across southwestern Uganda, into a new world of silence and pain. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. And now back to the story. The movement's world was made up of many satellite trading posts and intervillage housing units. But the heart of the cult sat within the main compounds. Built as massive housing complexes to serve as home and operations centers for the movement and its members, there were four locations. Ibumbiro Rio Maria, or Mary's Place of Molding, was located on Kibuteri's land in Ruashamer. Itakiro Rio Maria, or Mary's Place of Confession, was built near the town of Mituma. Then there was Igabiro Rio Maria, or Mary's Place of Giving, in Rugazi. This was built on Friar Dominic's land, outside of his old seminary. It was the most central of all of the compounds, as it sat near the Trans-African Highway, allowing for fast communication and a sizable chunk of farmable land that Dominic won over for the movement. Finally, there was Isha Yuriro Ria Maria, or Mary's Place of Rescue. This compound sat in the secluded foothills of Kanangu, near Credonia's birthplace. After her parents, Paul and Farazia Kashaku, died, the land ownership passed to Credonia, deeming Paul and Farazia the grandparents of the believers. Credonia built the altar of Mary's place of refuge right above their tombs. Although Paul and Farazia had no real connection to the movement, they became its icons, the Abraham and Sarah, the origin point of the movement's new generation. They funded this expansion in a predictable manner, recruitment itself. Once a potential recruit decided to commit, they were required to give up all of their material possessions. Proceeds were handed straight over to the movement's leaders. How was this justified? Two paths. One through biblical verse involving Abraham in the Old Testament, the other through Jesus' words in the New Testament. Corporatized Bible readings, not bad. The Abraham case was all that was needed for those of the lower class. Based on his words from the harsher half of the Bible, true followers of the Ten Commandments gave up all they owned without any expectation of return. It's obvious to see how this might be a tougher sell for the more educated recruits. They were already skeptical of the sinful ways of humankind. Was this just another scam? Well, that's where Jesus and the New Testament came in. Credonia singled out a verse where Jesus states, leave everything behind and follow me. This was more vague than Abraham's words. There was a hanging clause left open. Leaving something behind was different than giving it up. It gave psychological room to the skeptical. They could give this a shot. If it didn't work for them, the movement would return their belongings. At least that's what it sounded like. Well, as we already know, that wasn't really the case. If they ever gave up their dedication to the cult, they wouldn't be allowed to return to their old properties. 
For the wealthy, Jesus' words also force them to consider their vanity. If they weren't willing to even leave behind their material riches for salvation under Christ, did they even deserve defense against the apocalypse? The poorest among the recruits had a higher price to pay. With little land or things of value to hand over to the movement, they were forced to write out a list of their sins and were then fined for the collective total of their wrongdoing. Mm. All the while, the movement kept up their holier-than-thou attitude. Credonia's words from Kibwateri's mouth were this, We have presented you with the picture of Jesus and Mary. We have not given you presents, such as cattle, money, or cars, because we are poor in body, but we are rich in spirit and in everything that leads to eternal life. Yet, behind the scenes, the leaders lived by a different creed. While some, like Credonia, didn't have much wealth to leave behind, it's known that Joseph Kasapura Ari entrusted his belongings to other higher-status friends outside the movement. But the leaders would always live by different rules. In the followers' eyes, they had been spared already. The new trainees still needed to earn their place. The first task assigned to the trainees was to listen to the full tapes of a timely message from heaven, the supposed words taken directly from the Virgin Mary, delivered to Credonia and Kibuteri. After being teased with excerpts of the new word from on high during recruitment, they were trusted with the full version now. Their decision to join the movement was already paying off in their eyes. The full message was then laid over them. The world had rejected the Ten Commandments and given itself over to Satan. God was ready to wipe out humanity. But the Virgin Mary and Jesus Christ had earned mankind one last chance. Credonia's embellishments promised a spectacular apocalypse on the horizon. Different countries would pay in different ways. Here are a few examples from a timely message from heaven. Quote, Russia will have the pest of locusts of various types. Mozambique will be destroyed by its own machinery. Japan will have rain for as long as our father wants. France, your laziness will not permit you to endure the chastisements that will be inflicted upon you until you are destroyed in lamentation." End quote. This would all come to pass if the Ten Commandments were not restored worldwide. Clearly, Credonia had done her research on the Book of Revelation. This could have been due to a lack of creativity or a clever trick to appeal to the devout Catholics. A timely message wasn't overruling the Bible. It was a sequel and the big special effects show was still promised at the climax. The movement never really expected to save the world. They merely wanted to gather enough true believers to begin a new one. The time between the present and the coming apocalypse was deemed as the sieve, and the sieve would end sometime before the year 2000. After the chastisements rained down upon the earth, there would be three days of darkness. Here's where the compounds come in. They would be fortified as arcs, to sustain the believers during the end times, full of food and other supplies. If the malleable weren't already all in, they were now. They had just bought their way into safe refuge. After the apocalyptic tidings of the messages to Gudonia were memorized, the trainees would turn to the Virgin's messages to Kibuteri. Kibuteri's visions informed all daily life and ritual within the movement's compounds. Four-sevenths of the average day was to be spent in prayer. Two-sevenths would be dedicated to work. Only one-seventh of the day was allocated for rest. For the able-bodied, work was usually pushed beyond its two-sevenths allocation. It involved everything, from constructing the compound's many buildings, working in the fields for crops to feed every member, digging wells, caring for livestock, and facility maintenance. 
the leaders made each compound a self-sustaining unit. There was even a school opened at Mary's Place of Giving on Dominic's land. Children were kept in the school day in and day out. Their life was consumed by the movement. They were kept away from family members. Their family was the movement, and their life was its mission. This must have been incredibly psychologically damaging for the youth. Growing up within a cult impresses upon the brain's neuroplasticity. Children are more adaptable, but once they age, it becomes very difficult to break the patterns instilled within them at an early age. Credonia and the leaders knew this. Growing their membership would only get easier if the next generation had no attachment to material goods or outside reality to begin with. Within the community at large, all familial connections were similarly cut off. They were stripped of their birth names. All unmarried girls were sisters, and unmarried boys, brothers. All married women, aunts, and married men, uncles. Older members had their own titles. Civil marriages and parenthood were not recognized. Individual identity no longer mattered. Only the restoration mattered. Speech was discouraged unless in prayer or during occasional town hall meetings, where members were allowed to air their grievances with others before a council of leaders. Sign language and writing were the only viable means of communicating with one another. When visitors came by a movement compound, only leaders or those selected by leaders were allowed to break the silence and speak with them. It gave the outward appearance of a highly obedient and dedicated population. More brainwashing that also served as a marketing tactic. Credonia's methods were highly efficient, but they were psychologically reckless. Without identity, some people fell easily into the movement's trance. But the higher the cost, the greater the promise of reward. As the end times inched closer, members grew restless. The first large defection started in response to this harsh lifestyle around the mid-90s. But things held together for now. The cult was at its most powerful and cohesive between 1993 and 1995. For the trainees that could sustain this lifestyle, they looked forward to the bi-weekly learning process sessions. So from 8 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon, the trainees would fast and face lectures from Entumwa, who were also known as the apostles of the leaders. Entumwa, the apostles, took strict attendance. They would pray over each and every member before a session concluded. Earlier in the movement's operation, Entumwa were known to be violent, literally beating the demons out of trainees. When sessions took place in a compound where Kibwateri was currently residing, the bishop himself would preside over the trainees. It is in this way that Kibwateri became the face of the movement over Credonia. It was all part of their plan, of course. The male leader commanded fear and respect. While Credonia might have been controlling the minds of the followers, only a male presence carried the respect needed to sell that manipulation to the masses. These learning process sessions went on for five consecutive weeks. Afterward, the apostles would select those they felt were ready for full-time movement service. Deemed abatendequa, or disciples, the training was complete. But even the disciples knew the ladder of leadership remained steep and perhaps inaccessible. Abibembezi was the name given to the highest leadership. Beyond the all-powerful Bishop Kibuteri and the institutionally influential Vicar General Dominic, there was the family, descended from the grandparents of the believers, Credonia, the programmer, her niece, Ursula, the speaker of St. Maria and the Angels, Credonia's sister, Angelina, the dress of the Virgin Mary, and her brother, Henry, the building of St. Joseph. 
These titles are what distinguished the highest levels of command to disciples. The family of Friar Joseph Casapurari were known as visionaries. His mother, Scholastica, an influential counselor to Credonia, called herself Heaven's Loudspeaker. She claimed the ability to funnel the voices of saints and angels at will. Then there was a figure known only as Bampata. Handpicked by Credonia, he led the intelligence wing of the leadership council. He and his workers monitored every disciple and every trainee. They sent agents out to villages to recruit and to spy on the family of members who still held out against the movement's influence. Common to most of these leaders outside of Kibwiteri and Dominic is that they were all either family of Credonia and the original apostles or high-status individuals from the so-called sinful world. In other words, they were the most useful amongst the movement for expansion. They met regularly in meetings of the heads of planning. The agenda they discussed was always kept secret from the rest of the movement. However, a key piece of information is available to us from a high-profile defector, Friar Paul Ikaire, who left after 1993 with no apocalypse yet in sight. According to this former member of Abebembezi, soon before his defection, Credonia told the other leaders she had received new word from heaven. The movement had been permitted to kill, if necessary. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to the story. In 1993, such a measure as killing seemed extreme. The movement had just reached its peak level of status, thanks to the talents of Vicar General Dominic Katari Baabo. The Pope had just arrived in Uganda on a pastoral visit. Friar Dominic was able to gain audience, as the movement had just been legitimized by local government. Dominic presented the Pope with a clarified mission statement for the movement, and the Pope allegedly gave it his blessing. The truth of this event matters little. For the movement's disciples, it meant everything. Their mission had been blessed by God's highest authority on earth. The vicar general was invaluable to Credonia in this way. The prime collector of outside funds for the movement, Dominic was skilled at convincing local bureaucrats and authorities to donate funds and protection. Local commissioners in the districts where the movement compounds were built were often paid off in food, praise, and service from the disciples. Again, the speed at which Credonia built the movement is incredible. After only five years, the leaders claimed that the movement was as large as 3,000 members. But it was a sculpture of clay, not metal. Mm, cracks soon began to show. Mm -hmm. The first troubles arose from the very creation myth of the movement itself. When one declares an apocalypse, it's best to date it. The people need something specific to look forward to. First, the leader stated 1992 would be the end of the sieve. When the world failed to end, the date was moved to 1995. Again, lack of apocalypse led to another delay. This time, pushed to December 31st, 1999, or rather last minute. Mm -hmm. The more educated began to cry foul at this final date. The leader's only real excuse was that it was a heaven-based decision. There's no questioning the gods, both the strength and weakness in cults. Next came the consolidation of the compounds. Mary's place of molding was lost when Kibuteri's own family rebelled against him. Before 1998, even his wife Teresa was through with Kibuteri's ambitions. After the defection of Friar Paul Ikaire, the leaders decided that Dominic's land at Mary's place of giving was too valuable to lose if another defection occurred. They sold off the farmable land at a high profit. 
most full-time disciples were permanently relocated to Mary's place of refuge in Kanangu, Credonia's secluded homeland. Small factions were kept at the other open compounds and trading villages to maintain an illusion of stability. Here's where records really begin to grow scarce. Mary's place of refuge had tight security, and its nearly hidden location kept outsiders from peering inside. Defectors who survived the final years tell of increasingly hostile grievance sessions between disciples and leaders. When disciples spoke up against the leadership, questioning everything from handing over their property to the delayed apocalyptic dates, the leaders would casually and quickly quiet them down. Soon afterward, those disciples would disappear. The leader's excuse? The Virgin Mary had taken them to heaven early for their strength of belief. Hmm. Even to the uneducated, that must have sounded suspect. Mm -hmm. Straits grew more dire in 1998. First, the school at Mary's Place of Giving was shut down after a government investigation proved abuse had taken place within its walls. The remaining children who attended it were shuttled off to Mary's Place of Refuge before further investigation could be conducted. It's even possible that Dominic greased some palms to allow this shutdown to go as quietly as it did. But that wasn't the worst occurrence of 1998. Joseph Kibuteri was hospitalized. Diagnosed with bipolar depression, Kibuteri refused medication that might stabilize him. He walked out of the hospital soon enough and was never seen again outside of a movement compound. Soon enough, 1999 came and went. The sun set on December 31st and rose once more on January 1st. The new millennium had arrived and God's vengeance against humanity was nowhere in sight. Die Hard Movement member Andrew Tamuisine said it best at the time. He spoke of a threat to Credonia's safety at this turning point. The herd was growing restless. And as a woman, she would be on the chopping block before even Bishop Kibutere. Something had to be done. The year 2000 kept advancing, and the movement engaged itself in strange activities. Bampata, Credonia's intelligence leader, and his unit were sent out across southwestern Uganda in an attempt to round up disciples who had been spread thin or even defected. Some of these agents tried to trick defectors, telling them loved ones still in the movement had taken ill and the defectors needed to visit in order to see them. Others, like Bampata himself, tried the more direct route of kidnapping. He went to his children's school and tried to pull them out of class. When the teacher stopped him, he stooped low and dumped a sack of cash in their arms. He left without them. His children would never see him again. An invitation was sent out from Mary's place of refuge, inviting local authorities in the movement's pocket and family members of disciples alike to a celebration on March 18, 2000. Likely, this was a final trick on Credonia's part, an effort to disguise the momentous occasion on the horizon. Her spectacular apocalypse was finally going to arrive. The morning of March 17, 2000 arrived at Mary's place of refuge. And the order was finally given. The time of the sieve was about to end. The chastisements would soon arrive. Singing, the disciples were marched into the arcs they had made with their own two hands. The members of the movement sang all the way as the exits were sealed behind them. The remaining leaders promised them that they were being kept inside for their own safety. They didn't want anyone venturing out during the three days of darkness. But the darkness within the arcs did not last long. 
The arcs were doused in a flammable liquid made of nothing but wood. It didn't take long at all. <coughs> the arcs of Mary's place of rescue were set aflame, and they burned like the end times had truly arrived. Over 500 people were burned to death, most beyond all recognition. Uganda is preparing to ask Interpol to issue international uh, arrest warrants for several leaders of the group. The leaders have not been found. It's not even clear whether all of them are alive. The police were uh, planning on heading up to the far north to look in the mountains that they call the Mountains of the Moon, but they didn't arrive, and the police have yet to really explain what's going on with their investigation. The investigation was already a mess. No one had any idea the movement had been slowly building to this. Most mainstream publications, especially in the West, had no idea what the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments even was. But the horror wasn't over yet. As investigators branched out to other compounds and strongholds of the movement, a more dire portrait came into focus. First, at Mary's Place of Giving, Friar Dominic's compound, evidence was discovered of secrets beneath the ground. A nephew of the former Roman Catholic priest who owned the house told investigators that there was fresh concrete on the floor and that he had seen a pit. And investigators went to look and pounded through the floor, discovered one body, and they kept going. Kept digging, they did. And they found over 155 more bodies. Spread across the other movement sites were similar mass graves, adding another 400 more victims. These bodies were not burnt. Some showed signs of strangulation, stab wounds, and poisoning. They had already begun to decompose, leading investigators to believe these murders had been committed at least a week before the fire at Mary's place of rescue. Later, reports came in centering on Friar Kasapur Ari, how he traveled around buying up quantities of battery acid. This was likely the acid used to poison the disciples at the other sites. In total, at least 1,055 people were killed in the movement's final action, one of the deadliest cults in the history of the modern world. And investigators never got very far. The wife of Joseph Kibwateri, who was one of the main cult leaders of the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments, said that her husband wasn't really the leader. I mean, while he was known as the prophet of the movement, she says that he was really under the control of, of another woman who claimed to regularly have visions and conversations with the Virgin Mary, and it was she that really directed him and directed the rest of the members of the cult. Nobody knows where she is. Some who came across the Kanungu fire just as it began report seeing a truck fleeing the scene. Some say they spotted Credonia riding in the back of it safely into the night. There were later rumors that Ugandan police sent a search team into the north of the country, where sightings of Kibiteri had been made. Nothing ever came of these, but it's almost certain that at least Credonia escaped, as she was definitely the architect of the destruction in the first place. Closer search of Mary's place of rescue revealed six more bodies buried beneath the leader headquarters. It could have been any of the Ababembezi. One body, wearing the collar of a holy man, was deemed Dominic Kitari Baabo, but it could have easily been Kasapura Ari or one of the other turned holy men of the movement. There's not much information on the rest of the investigatory effort. Western media soon forgot about this tragedy. All went quiet on the search for Credonia, Kibuteri, and any other surviving leader. The realm of truth was left to those who didn't have the privilege of forgetting. 
The defectors, the families, the locals, those who still bared the scars of the movement's carnage. Amongst those, Professor Atu Hare presents the most believable theories on what actually led to this firestorm. After the movement school was shut down in 1998, the central Ugandan government in Kampala began to catch scent of what type of organization they were dealing with. The defense of local commissioners just wouldn't cover it. If Kampala launched a full investigation into the movement and its connections to local government figures. All of those local authorities that Dominic Katari Baabo had wooed were getting nervous. They didn't care what the movement did behind closed doors until there was a risk of being implicated alongside it. They might have begun pressing inwardly on the Abebembezi, especially the central trio of Kibuteri, Dominic, and Credonia. Coupled with the tensions growing inside the cult, the ultimate danger of leading this movement was becoming ever more clear. Credonia knew she was in trouble. She could have easily convinced many of her fellow leaders of the same. A final manipulation from the programmer in order to escape what she had created. The movement never had an end goal in mind. Credonia orchestrated it as something that could grow as quickly as possible. In other words, something that would give her power as quickly as possible. The influence was what she was after. Yet she had never been in the public eye before. Like Friar Dominic or Joseph Kibwetere, she didn't know there was a cost to shedding obscurity. People were frightened of her. People believed in her. People needed her. But people also staked their spiritual existence on her. It's a dangerous game, manipulating such grand hopes and fears. If the followers realized they had been gamed, there was no god on which they could take out their anger, only Credonia and the Abebembezi who enabled her rise to power. This result echoes that of similar cults. Take, for instance, the People's Temple in 1978, otherwise known as Jonestown. After conducting a high-profile assassination, the leaders of the cult led the followers in a massive ritual suicide. There was no other way out. There was also the final fate of the Branch Davidians in Waco under David Koresh. Closed in by the FBI in 1993, multiple fires were lit in their compound, destroying records and members' lives. This theory regarding the movement leadership's decision-making doesn't even take into account the possibility that Kibwiteri had continued a spiral into mental instability. While it's more likely that Credonia made the initial call to orchestrate the killings, Kubiteri might have easily sided with her if he was already lost in delusion. There's even the possibility that Kibwiteri was already dead, as some theorized, perhaps from suicide or an undocumented disease. In this case, his blessing wouldn't have been necessary at all. Credonia would have assumed full control behind the scenes. There wasn't a spirit inside the movement of the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God. There was an emptiness, a void. A black hole. And like all black holes, they absorb everything from the inside out. The strong swallowed the weak. And then the strong died themselves or fled back into the darkness, like Credonia, who was never seen again after her fateful year 2000. The words of the Virgin Mary were mistaken, if they ever existed in the first place. The chastisements were not headed for the rest of the world. They were headed for the movement. Whether in the end it was God or the vagaries of human ambition, the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments was exterminated from the earth. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. 
If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Join us next Tuesday as we investigate Anne Hamilton Byrne. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, production assistance by Joel Stein, Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Cults is written by Jack Bentel and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 